Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and this is the ACR 2019 podcast. We're coming to you from the annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode is a collection of our faculty reports, interviews, and panel discussions recorded live from the Room Now booth. I hope you enjoy and learn. This is Olga Petrina with more updates from 2019 ACR meeting. Uh, today I would like to highlight one of the late-breaking abstracts, abstract number L20, which presents us with the results of the head-to-head comparison of ixaginumab and adalimumab for treatment of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In this open-label randomized trial, patients were divided into groups. One received um, ixaginumab and another one adalimumab. Patients in this group uh, met uh, CASPAR criteria for active psoriatic arthritis with more than three swollen and tender joints, and they were having active psoriasis with more, more than 3% of body surface area involved. Patients were allowed to use conventional DMARs like methotrexate, for example, but they were all bio-naive in this study. As a result, um, patients in uh, both groups showed really good response in terms of joint disease with ACR50 scores being quite comparable for both groups at weeks 24 and 52. But the primary endpoint of the study was simultaneous ACR50 and PASI90 response. And in this regard, uh, the Ixakinumag group performed much better with uh, 36% of the patients achieving a higher response in Ixakinumag group as comparing, uh, comparing to 28% in Adalimumab group. And this trend continued up to 52 weeks, where at uh, 52 weeks, Ixakinumab group uh, responded better at 39% and Adalimumab group only at 26%. When we looked at the, when researchers looked at the uh, um, patients who received methotrexate, in both groups, methotrexate improved responses, but the common trend of higher response rate in exokinumac group remained the same. When it came to adverse events, uh, we could can see that patients in adalimumab group had higher incidence of infections, higher rates of hypersensitivity reactions, malignancy, and uh, uh, cytopenias, while in exokinumab group patients dominated in terms of injection site reactions and inflammatory bowel disease. There were one case of ulcerative colitis and one case of Crohn's disease. If you would like to learn more, please follow us on Room Now and enjoy the meeting. Thank you. Hi, I'm David Lee from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for RoomNow.com at ACI 2019 here in Atlanta, Georgia. Just wanted to tell you about something a little bit different, uh, and particularly about the way that posters are designed and how that's affecting things here on the poster floor at ACR. Traditionally, posters have been formatted with a relatively small title and they're quite data rich. It can be hard to know what they're about when you're walking past them, and that's particularly a problem when there are thousands of posters um, at a conference like there are here at ACR. You're walking past them and it can be hard to know what they mean, whether they're of interest, you stop, and by the time you do that, you might only get to the first part of the poster hall. Now, this isn't a problem that's unique to rheumatology. It's something that um, other people have been thinking about if you go online and have a look at some of the videos of that better poster, um, especially the ones by Mike Morrison, it's quite interesting to see what they're talking about in terms of poster design. 
what does this mean at ACI 2019? Well, there have been a few posters, including uh, one that I was involved with, where the title is really big, there's a lot of negative space, and it kind of conveys a message clearly when you're walking past it. There weren't many of those, and I think we're still gradually getting used to the idea. Um, I think as rheumatologists, we're, we're just a, a little bit more conservative as far as those things are concerned, but um, I'm wondering whether that might, in fact, be a bigger thing in, in ACRs to come. The ACR are very interested in this, and uh, it's going to be the kind of thing which uh, we'll see at ULRs and ACRs over the course of time. Anyway, for more information, go to roomnow.com. Hi, it's David Liu here, reporting for roomnow.com from ACI 2019 here in Atlanta, Georgia. Day three has brought some interesting posters to the poster floor. I'd like to tell you a little bit about one regarding the influenza vaccine, particularly the high-dose trivalent inactivated vaccine. <clears throat> We've seen data at previous meetings um, about how it's effective in our patients, and really it gives us better protection than the standard dose. Um, the question's always been, it's only been registered for patients over the age of 65 and whether it is actually effective in patients under the age of 65. Maybe the data for rheumatoid arthritis patients was biased by those over 65 patients. Well, some data from McGill, 279 patients, looked at how the patients under the age of 65 performed. And in fact, as far as immunogenicity to the influenza vaccine was concerned, they did really well. The high-dose vaccine really does work quite well on those patients, and that's the kind of protection we need to be giving our rheumatoid arthritis patients, especially as we get into influenza season here in the Northern Hemisphere. So important lessons, and hopefully this eventually gets reflected in what we can access for our patients. I'm David Liu, and for more information, go to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Jana Pope. I'm at Room Now at the booth here at ACR 2019 in Atlanta, and I'm a Room Now reporter. I'd like to talk about abstract number 2567, and it was really about drug levels associated with lupus flares. So Dr. Petrie and others have actually looked at drug levels, and the higher the level, the more chance of the patient doing well if it's in the therapeutic range. This was a different take on it. There were researchers that looked, albeit a small study of under 90 patients but they looked at drug levels at the time of lupus nephritis flare and what I think is a little bit shocking is that the drug levels were around 200 for the other patients that didn't have a flare at the time they were about a thousand and in general uh, one-third of the patients never had a therapeutic drug, le drug level so this could be non-adherence it could be a metabolic interaction with lupus nephritis I'm not sure what but it might change my practice because right now I don't do drug levels. I don't want them toxic, but I'd like them therapeutic. You might have to see if you do drug levels routinely for hydroxychloroquine on your patients with lupus. Thank you. I'm Jonathan Kay of the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm here at the ACR 2019 meeting in Atlanta, and I saw a poster that Renee Westhoven's presented number 548, about the subcutaneous formulation of the biosimilar infliximab CTP-13. CTP-13 is a biosimilar infliximab developed by Celtrion in South Korea that has been approved in the European Union, the United States, and many other countries. In the United States, it is marketed under the brand name Inflectra. In Europe, it's marketed under the brand names Inflectra and Remsema. And this biosimilar infliximab was reviewed and approved according to the abbreviated biological license application in the United States as an intravenous formulation in comparison to 
bio-originator infliximab, Remicade. The intravenous formulation was approved by the FDA as a biosimilar and has been used uh, by patients around the world uh, with no significant loss of efficacy as shown in the Northswitch study and no increase in safety risk. Celtrion developed this biosimilar infliximab in a new formulation as a subcutaneous uh, administration of 120 milligrams subcutaneously every other week. They conducted a non-inferiority study uh, comparing the intravenous formulation to the subcutaneous formulation after two loading doses of infliximab, three milligrams per kilogram intravenously. 362 patients were enrolled and were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either the intravenous or the subcutaneous formulation. The results of this study were presented up to one year by Renee Westhovens, who showed that there was no, there was non-inferiority of the subcutaneous formulation compared to the intravenous formulation with no safety risks identified that were novel. The steady state uh, trough level of drug was better maintained with the subcutaneous dosing than with the intravenous dosing every eight weeks where there were peaks and troughs uh, that would be expected given intravenous dosing. The question comes up when this drug is evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, is this a biosimilar? Well, to be a biosimilar uh, medication has to be uh, administered at the same dose, dosing regimen and route of administration as its reference product. And certainly, infliximab reference product is administered only intravenously. Thus, it is likely that the United States Food and Drug Administration will require this subcutaneous formulation to be evaluated as a new biopharmaceutical according to the 351A pathway rather than the 351K pathway for a biosimilar. However, the FDA has not yet evaluated this medication fully and we have yet to see how this regulatory process will proceed in the United States. Regardless, this is a very interesting uh, first time uh, where we see a biosimilar that is administered in a traditional route of uh, administration being developed for a different route of administration. For more information, go to Room Now. I'm Jonathan Kay. This is Dr. Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm here at the ACR 2019 conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And you know, it's pearls, pearls, pearls. We had pearls from Dr. Michelle Petrie. We had pearls from Dr. Sterling West. Well, I'm going to share with you another set of pearls. And these are pearls from Dr. John Stone. And essentially, he gave us some really good myths and pearls for vasculitis. And this is from clinical practice. Some of these pearls aren't necessarily published, but from his own clinical experience. So let's go ahead and start. Number one, ANCA-associated vasculitis can flare even when the B cells are not measurable. Now, how is that possible, you say? Well, there's B cells somewhere. There's B cells that could be in a collection um, in places that are not measurable because measurable B cells are only 5% of the whole B cell population. Oh, hey, another pearl here is that if you have a patient with granulomatosis with polyangiitis, GPA, and if they still have some disease activity with rituximab, then you should go ahead and add cyclophosphamide. Because steroids can fail also about 60% of patients, whether it's from side effects or it doesn't work, you want to go ahead and add tocilizumab early in patients with giant cell arteritis. Another pearl that I found was that 
granulomatosis with polyangiitis can cause a unilateral facial droop. It looks just like Bell's palsy. So don't just automatically assume it's Bell's palsy, but think about GPA as well. And then he also um, gave this one, Pearl, that I thought was really going to be useful in my practice. So the first sign of ANCA-associated vasculitis is typically migratory oligoarthritis, and it usually favors the lower extremities. And where it's going to be useful here is if a patient's going to have a flare, this may be one of the first signs of their flare. And then let's look at eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, eGPA. So we know that you can have nodules on elbows, and usually nodules in the elbows could be from infection, could be from um, rheumatoid arthritis, gout, but did you know that eGPA can do that too? And then finally, one last um, pearl that I'm going to go ahead and share with you that I learned from Dr. Stone's uh, little lecture here is that you don't have to have ulcers to have bachettes. In fact, he shared with us a few cases where a patient can present with panuveitis and also CNS manifestations, and her clinical feature features it's very consistent with bachettes, but she didn't have ulcers. It, and they went ahead and treated her like bachettes, and then years later, she finally popped up an ulcer. So ulcers may not be the predominant symptoms. So those are the pearls. I'm going to go ahead and blog about that. So follow me at roomnow.com.